Okay, good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Part two of our Shir on Aim Habanim Semecha. Let's do a very quick review of what we did last week. We discussed Rav Yisachar Shlomo Teichtel, Hasidish Hungarian Rebbe, who was caught up in the Holocaust together with his family, watched his community being decimated, and turned around on a 180-degree turn his upbringing of a very anti-Zionist state, which was very common for that time period, and uh, wrote this treatise basically in hiding without Svarm, mostly, about the understanding that he came to that really the salvation of the Jewish people rests in the support and the moving to the land of Israel. And that really, as opposed to what those many in his time period were saying was the cause of the Holocaust, is actually just the opposite and needs to be what we need to throw our efforts into. He discussed, we discussed very briefly last week, how he decried the fact that the non-religious Jews had taken up this cause. They had been inspired. They came back to the land, and because of that, they were the Balabatim. They now have ownership. They have control because they're the ones who came. They're the ones who drained the swamps. They're the ones who are building infrastructure. And the religious are sitting on their hands off on the side. So, of course, it's not a religious land because none of the religious people came to make it one. And he uh, tried to defend them, and he described how that is going to be the eventual salvation. And he had the beautiful piece in which a Jew in the exile who feels that he's there, who desires to go, even if he can't at this particular moment, is as if he is already there. And we'll talk a little bit more about that idea as well. And we concluded last week how we spoke about the title, Aim Habanim Semecha, the mother of a child, the joyous mother of a child, as he envisioned the land of Israel, which is referred to in Chazal many times as our mother, um, will have her arms open, waiting to bring in all of the exiles, all of the Jews throughout the world, and with great joy, as he told the story of the mother who had been separated from her children, thinking she would never see them again. But when they came home, what a joy. If you haven't seen such a joy, you've never seen joy in your life. And therefore, uh, that's what he named the Sefer, Aim Habanim Semecha, in the hope, yearning, and prayer that Eretz Yisrael will one day, one day indeed be the Aim Habanim Semecha. As we pointed out last week, we're halfway there. Half a world Jewish population has indeed already returned to Eretz Yisrael. Okay, let's pick up with his, his uh, first chapter. Just make sure you have uh, the right... We have a couple of different handouts flying around. You have page 5 to 8? Yeah, okay, you're good. Not one to five. There you go. Okay, uh, in, in what he calls chapter 1, he titles Persecution and the Birth Pangs of Mashiach. This idea that two ideas in, this, in, the, in the header. Number one, Jews suffer persecution. This is not a chiddush, this is not a new idea to any of us. Jewish history is just filled with, we could only like label, like when was the next persecution and when did we last get kicked out of which land and when did we suffer which pogrom and inquisition and, and holocaust and crusade. So much persecution. And then this idea of the birth pains of Mashiach. That when Mashiach comes, it's not going to be simple. It's going to come out of labor, birth, birth pangs, difficulties, and he's going to discuss a lot of this idea, so let's jump right in. The idea of waiting for Mashiach is a fundamental tenet, so fundamental, the Rambam put it into his Yud Gimel Ikarim, his 13 fundamental principles of Jewish faith, Ani ma'amin be'emuna shalema mashiach. It's going to happen. It's, we, it's the air we breathe, we teach it to our children when they're young, we sing it as a song. There's this idea of redemption. There's an idea that the way things are now is not the way they're supposed to be. The place where we live now is not the place we're supposed to live. And we're yearning, waiting, hoping for salvation. It's going to be in the form of Mashiach, and we don't know when it's going to happen. Even if it delays, and it delays, and it delays, 
we go to sleep at night, we wake up in the morning, maybe it'll be today. And even if we get used to the fact, it doesn't seem like it's coming, but maybe it'll be today. Maybe it's going to happen. But just that idea changes the way we live our lives, knowing this is really not it. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're yearning for something else, something different. We don't grow up thinking, we made it, we're in the five towns, like this is gonna, no, no, no. It's nice here, it's nice, I'm, I, I'm the new car, I can tell you, we haven't made it. When we get to Yushalayim, we can say we made it, but not here. And Ani, waking up every day and saying, Ani ma'amin be'munu shalema be'viyas ha'mashiach, says that. Now, from time immemorial, the Jews have wondered, so when is it going to be? When is it going to happen? One of the earliest re- references raised in Chumash, Yaakov Avinu, we're going way back in Jewish history, Yaakov Avinu is on his deathbed, Chazal tell us, Ubikesh legalos es haketz, and he desired to tell his 12 children surrounding him on his deathbed, he was going to be, he's going to tell us how it was going to end, what it was going to look like. And he lost it. He lost the Nebu, he wasn't able to share. And from that moment on, there's always been this yearning, this desire. The Gemara already talks, if anybody, the Gemara says, if anybody tells you that they know when Mashiach is coming, don't bother listening to them. And this is codified by all of the poskim. Even the Rambam writes this after then he says, but I'm going to tell you when I think it's going to come. We've always had calculations throughout the centuries. Many have tried to figure out and decide... But they've come and gone. And the reason why we really don't do that is for the obvious reason, as the Gemara says itself. Why is it so harmful to give a time period when you think it's going to come? Because it comes and then it goes. And then what's happened to all the people who put their faith into it? This is, this is really it. And there have been uh, I, countless times in Jewish history where the community, the Jewish community has said, Oh, this is it. Most recently... Most recently, I would say. No, much, much more recently. 1967. 1967. I wasn't around then. But I've heard from everyone, and re- from everything that I've read, the, Jewish, the world Jewish community after 1967 was positive. Like, this was it. I mean, got, yeah, this was it. We had Yushalayim. It was just, it was crazy. Six days the whole world was euphoric. And that day also came and went, and it's 50 years later, and we got a lot of tzara still, and there, you know, it's, there been, and many times throughout history where there have been points in time, so we, we just plow forward. We plow forward, but we have this belief, this fundamental belief that it's coming. Now, second part of that belief is what the Gemara says, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult when it comes. I want to share with you just a few. I picked out a few Gemaras, and I want to read them quickly in section B here, about what it's going to be like. Just quickly, because this isn't our real topic, but it's important. Rabbi Yochanan says, all from the Gemara, Masechah Sanhedrin, the Dor Sheba Ben David, that's what the Gemara always says, the generation in which the Mashiach is going to come, Torah scholars will decrease. And as for the rest of the people, their eyes will fail with sorrow and grief and troubles will increase. Rabbi Yudha says, now the generation that the son of David will come, the hall of the assembly of the sages will be designated for prostitution. The, the, the Beis HaMedrish will become a house of prostitution. The Galilee will be destroyed. The Gavel and some other place will be desolate. The wisdom of the scholars will diminish. And sin-fearing people, Yare Shemayim, they'll be the ones who are despised. And the face of the generation will be like the face of a dog. And truth... 
truth will be lacking. Now, many generations have said, oh, this is us, this is us. We're that generation. You're not the first ones to say that, don't worry. You're not the first ones to say that. Rabbi Norai says, the generation in which the son of David will come, youth will humiliate the elders. And the elders will stand in deference before the youth. Total backward situation. Daughters will rebel against their mothers and brides against their mothers-in-law. And again, the face of the generation will be the face of a dog and a son will not be ashamed before his father. Each one of these guards is picking up on different traits, but say, it's going to be so bad, the generation in which Mashiach will come. Arim Nechemi says, um, arrogance will proliferate. The cost of living will corrupt people, meaning it's going to become so expensive, people will, will turn to all type of thievery and inappropriate living. The vine will produce fruit, but you won't be able to afford it. And the entire Gentile monarchy will be converted to heresy, and there'll be no inclination among the people to accept rebuke. I just picked out a few of them just to give you a sense, a flavor of the way the sages describe, and I did not get into the horrific destruction that will befall the Jewish people, to the point that one of the Amoraim in the Gemara says... I yearn and pray that I'm not alive to see Mashiach come. I can't imagine being alive to see this horror. And I hope I'm not there to see it. Like, you, you read that line of Gemara and you're taken aback. Like, this is what we're yearning for. He's like, I know, but getting there is so bad I don't even want to see it. Now, all of this comes from the idea, as we mentioned earlier in the first box, Pussing in Yishayahu says, like a pregnant woman close to giving birth, she is in pain, she cries out in her pangs, so were we before you. Rashi comments, what's this idea of like a pregnant woman? Why is that the phrase the Navi describes us in? Rashi comments, we observe renewed afflictions and conclude that they are a sign of salvation and redemption. Because we have been promised that we will be redeemed amidst trouble and hardship, like a woman in labor. That is the tradition that we have. The, the Navi always takes examples of life that we live and we're familiar with and uses that. And the example the sages have continuously turned to to describe the coming of Mashiach is the birth of a new era. And in the same way that a child has this lovely experience for nine months in gestation, everything it needs is beautiful, but then the process of coming out is tumultuous in every way, much more so for the mother than for the baby, but for both. It's a tremendous, it's the birth pains. And that's the language Chazal use as we birth the new era in history. It will not come smooth. It will come amidst that kind of tumultuous experience. Now again, now we're going to pick up in the writings of Rav Teichtel again. He is writing in the furnace of the Holocaust. First hand account. He's not writing afterwards. He's writing in 1943. And you talk about birth pangs, giving birth to Mashiach. We can say, and even this is, many people are hesitant to say this, but I'll, I'll be quoting others when I say this, that the birth pangs of the Holocaust gave rise, of course, to the state of Israel. That we, it, it, even that's hard to say, like, because that almost in a way says like, Oh, because of that, and we can't talk about the Holocaust, it's beyond us. But just looking at what happened, we went through from 39 to 45, and then in 48, which historically speaking is like right afterwards, in the, out of the ash of the Holocaust comes the state of Israel. So if one wanted to say, yes, there was a birth pang, and this was what was given birth to, one could make such an argument and discuss it. That's not our topic for tonight. But he's writing in the midst of the birth. He doesn't know it. 
He has no idea that the state of Israel is coming. And as we will talk about Rav Kook many, Rav Kook died in 1935, still 13 years before the state of Israel. Rav Kook thought Mashiach was on the doorstep. He would not believe that we are still sitting in exile in 2020. There's no way when he was on his deathbed in 1935, and he didn't know the Holocaust was coming, he didn't know the state of Israel was coming, but it was unimaginable at that point. We're still? Still in exile? But we went through all of that, that horrors. So let's read his, his take from the furnace of the Holocaust on this idea of waiting for Mashiach and then the birth pangs that will bring it. In the box in section C, we must lovingly bear and courageously endure all of the hardships, the evil decrees and persecutions that have befallen us. So right away, you know, like this is, it's a horror. It's inexplicable still to this day, certainly at that time. And his take on it is we have to accept them with love and courage for they are considered holy burnt offerings, like a carbon, a carbon ola. We must not become skeptical nor speak in the matter foretold by the last prophet of Malachi who prophesies that the horror of the birth pangs, when the unusual afflictions will be so bad, he, he foretold that people will say, it's useless to serve God and what profit is there should we keep his Torah? Everyone does evil. Everyone who, everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord and he favors them. Where is the God of justice? Meaning the prophet himself said it's going to be so bad. People will say, like, what, I, I, I should stick with this? I should observe Torah mitzvahs for what? Look what's happening to us. Those who are doing evil, they get whatever they want. And us? So the prophet already said, that's what's going to happen. So if Titellus is screaming in 1943, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. However, he writes, this is exactly what we have here today in the second paragraph. Those who fear and cling to God speak to one another cautioning them not to cleave to, evil, to their evil ways. They are strengthened and encouraged, and it is worthwhile for us to bear this heavy burden because, because of what's coming. That's his, his opening argument. Then he addresses the question of, okay, but like, why does it have to be that way? I, I see that the parable the sages use is a woman in labor. Okay, why does it have to be that that's how Mashiach has to come? That salvation is going to come through these horrible... Why? Why is that necessary? See, he brings four approaches. He brings four approaches, which I will uh, briefly mention here. Number one, the Orachayim writes, one of the classic commentators in Chumash, I want to do this uh, very briefly, that there are two ways in which Mashiach will come, based on the language of the Gemara. One is im zoicha, if we will merit it, and one is im enozoich, if we will not merit it. The Gemara talks about two different ways in which uh, Mashiach comes. If we merit it, if we merit it, the Gemara talks about it as it will come as if a Mashiach, so to speak, the salvation will come riding in on a, uh, on a cloud, floating in and, and will take us back. If we do not merit it, the Gemara says, it's going to be a much more difficult process. And there are two ways in which Mashiach could have come. This is an entirely longer discussion where we see the sources for the two different ways. Um, and so the Chaim writes, we missed all of the opportunities. All of the deadlines that we could have merited on our own have come and gone. And now it's going to come without merit. But if, you, if Mashiach comes without us earning it, without merit, it's going to come at a cost. Something has to take the place, so to speak, of what we should have done to bring him. And so the Orchaim's approach is the, the difficulties, the pain and the suffering is we missed the boat. We didn't earn it. 
So it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. That's, that's, uh, that's his approach. The morale is a very philosophical approach in which he describes, in English it translates into the absence precedes uh, existence. Whatever the le- And before something is brought into existence, the level of absence, the level of dark, so to speak, will foreshadow how much light can come in. And so if something massive has to come into the world, so then it's going to take a tremendous amount of darkness before that to bring it in. The Gemara has a phrase that the egg, when a, when a chicken lays an egg and it actually develops into a new chick, so the chick, so to speak, is nourished from the substance of the egg, which could have become an edible egg. But then as the chick begins to develop, it absorbs all of the stuff of the egg and then the egg is no longer edible because it becomes part of the... But it's the, whatever was there from the egg, as it rots from human consumption, it becomes part of the new chick. So your size of your egg, the health of the egg, whatever then rots becomes part of that, the new, so to speak. So he uses that as a parable of the greatness of the redemption that's going to come has to come from something and it comes in a contrast to that which is a big philosophical question. We're not getting into exactly explaining it. Uh, explaining it is that. I do want to focus, what we're going to get into is really the fourth, which is what Rav Teichtel focuses on which is a reality, an unfortunate reality. You spoke about this about Sunday morning for those who were here as we spoke about in, in Tefillah. Um, and Rav Teichtel says, as we saw in Mitzrayim and we see throughout the rest of Jewish history, if Mashiach would come, I, always, I say this tongue-in-cheek, but not really. Can you imagine if Mashiach would come 5.30 p.m. Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> I mean, you got like every you got the, you got your deli platters, you got your parties. Everybody said you clear the counter like, oh, now, like really now, you you know like but then maybe some like like and you can you substitute that for any other time period where you were looking for like whatever you want to say. You have big shows to the Broadway play, Hamilton's in town, the Shul's running a program. Like now. So, Rav Teichel speaks about that like just on, on steroids. If, if we're comfortable, if things are good, if my house is nice, and the car, and the business, and the kids, and like, life is good, and then all of a sudden, Mashiach comes, and I have to pick up and leave, I don't want to leave. I like it here. I'm comfortable here. I want it there, you know, I don't have my... So, so one of the reasons, so why do we have all of this suffering beforehand? Well, if we don't want to go before, if we don't do it on our own and we need to be extracted out, so then it comes from a place in which it actually becomes salvation. And th- this is going to be a hard sentence to say, but this comes in from the, the Super Bowl joke. If Mashiach would come an hour before the Super Bowl or worse during the first quarter, or worse, the fourth quarter, is that salvation? And a Jew would think, now, then it's not salvation. That's not redemption. Redemption is, I, I'm yearning. So if we get to a point in the exile, if a Jew, the Jewish community, becomes so embedded where we are that the thought of leaving is not appealing, then we're in trouble. And if we get to that point, then Mashiach has to become appealing. Well, how does it become appealing to us? It's not pleasant to speak about, but it becomes appealing to us when things get really bad where we are, it will become much more appealing to go home. And this is, 
If we don't do, we're going to get to this in a second. If we don't go on our own, then there will be external circumstances that will help get us there. So in the furnace, it's easy for me to say this because I'm, I'm saying over his words, from the furnace of the Holocaust, we're, we got good condition. Our biggest complaint is that there was no parking tonight. He's got a different set of complaints and he's saying, Chevra, wake up. This is good for us because this is going to get us to want to go home, which at that point, most of the Hungarian Jewish community did not want to do. They were not interested in going to Palestine for many reasons. And this is one of the main reasons which he describes is why there has to be this, this sense. He shows it from a medrash. This is a powerful medrash. The medrash says, we just read two weeks ago, Parshas Noach, Vayishlach Noach es Hayona, top of page two, six on your sheets. Noach sends out the dove. The Medrash says the dove represents the Jewish people being sent from its home from the Teva and it's sent out. And just as the dove did not find rest for the sole of her foot, so too Israel will find no rest in exile. As the Pasuk says, will be no rest for the soles of your feet. The Pasuk and Devarim, the Tochacha, and this has been the story of Jewish history. We think we have rest right now. Okay, there's been a few years of good years here in the States. Jewish history is no rest for the Jews. We went from this place to that place to that place to this place, kicked out of every single country we've ever been in. There has not been a place in our exile where it ended well for the Jewish people. So, yeah, you want to think that the United States is an exception? Right now it is. But every other single time it's ended terribly. And that's a Pasuk that the dove will find no rest for its weary feet. And just as the dove returned to the ark, so too will Israel eventually return to its land from exile because the yoke of the nations who are likened to water cause us all sorts of trouble and eventually will come home. Medrash then takes the Pasuk in Megillus Eicha, the beginning of Megillus Eicha, she dwelled in amongst the nations but found no rest. The Medrash says, why is it that we are described as finding no rest amongst the nations of the world? Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish says, because had she found rest, she would not have returned. Had the dove found anywhere to go, would not have come back to the ark. Says the Medrash, the Jewish people in exile, if they find rest, good here. Well, by definition, if it's good here, why would I want to go somewhere else? So we don't find rest, and eventually it always, it's the story of the Jewish people. Wherever we are, eventually there is no rest. Wherever we are, and when there is no rest, we will indeed come home. That is his first part of chapter number one. The idea of the birth pangs are going to be what's going to move us because there's no rest for a Jew in exile. It just doesn't exist. It's not where we're supposed to be. And as long as we're not where we're supposed to be, we will never really indeed find any, any rest. Then he turns to, when this time comes, we will all go from the righteous to the sinners. Everyone is going to go. Okay, so let's, as we shift now, that's the end of section one. The idea of needing to come home and experiencing troubles wherever we are in order to get us home. Which one of us are coming home? See, he says, all of us. Now, listen to what he does with the following medrash. He quotes the medrashes in the box in section E. Based on the Pesach in Tehillim, he gathered them out of the lands. So there's this idea the Pesach is describing that Hashem is going to gather us from the lands that we're in and bring us back home. But the medrash has three different opinions as to what will that look like when Hashem brings us and gathers us from the exile and brings us back home? Pay attention to the, to the three different things we're about to read. Number one, Israel was immersed in Egypt like a bird in the hands of a hunter. As it says, I will go down to rescue him. So there's an imagery that a bird is trapped by a hunter. 
And Hashem is going to rescue us from the hunter, exile, and bring us back home. That's parable number one. Parable number two, Rabbi Yavon, the name of Rabbi Acha said, no, 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 no. When Israel was in Egypt, it was like a fetus in the innards of an animal. And just as the shepherd places his hand inside to remove it as an animal is giving birth, and the shepherd helps it along by extracting the fetus out of the womb of its mother, so to do Hashem, help extract us, <coughs> excuse me, from the land of Mitzrayim to take us home. That's parable number two. And parable number three, Rabbi Ivo says in the name of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, as a goldsmith stretches out his hand and removes the gold from the furnace. Gold has all sorts of impurities in it. You put it in the furnace, you burn out the impurities, and then you have to extract that from the furnace. So too did the Holy One, blessed be, take us out of the land of Egypt. Three different approaches, all of them in agreement. The Pasuk says Hashem had to rescue us, and will do so in the future. Whether it's like a bird trapped by a hunter, a shepherd pulling out a, a, a fetus, an animal from its mother's, its, its mother's womb, or like a goldsmith purifying gold in a furnace. So Rav Teichtel says, what's the difference? Why do we have three different opinions as to what the redemption will look like? And he says a beautiful idea, powerful and frightening a little uh, idea. He says, because there are three types of Jews in the world. And depending on the type of Jew, depends on what type of redemption he needs. And think of the parable, he says, a bird is trapped by a hunter. So he's in a trap. What does that bird need to go free? The bird's trying. The bird wants out. The bird just wants to go home. What's the problem? There's a trap. What do you need to do to let him out? Open up the trap door, and the bird on its own is gone. Because that's the Jew yearning to go home. The Jew who wants to return. And there are things that are trapping us in exile. I can't. That's not the right time. I, the, the, my heart. I want it. I'm yearning. As soon as that trap door is open, that's the Jew... And every person in exile, myself included, has whatever that trap door is, but there's a the yearning, and when that will be lifted, they're out. Nothing more needs to be done. Then there's another type of Jew who, like a fetus being born, it's a natural process. It's going to happen on its own, but it could use a little bit of help. It's a difficult process, but a natural one. That's the Jew who's embedded in the exile, but is, is ready to go, but not ready to go. It needs a little, uh, you know, a little push. Not just a trapdoor opening and then they fly out on his own. A little, you know, <clears throat> drag him out. But he's ready to go. He just needs, needs a little yanking to be done. But the third Jew, the third Jew has no interest. That's the gold with impurities in it. How do you get the impurities out of the gold? To put in the furnace and you got to burn it out because it's so embedded in the, in the gold, the piece of metal itself has the impurities in it. There's no other way. There's no natural way to make it pure. You can't do it in a natural way that just needs a little bit of help. It's not like a birth. It's not like the bird ready to fly. I got to burn it out of you. Says, That's the Jew who is so an exiled Jew that it's not even in their mind, it's not in their dreams, it's not in their discussions, it's not when are we go. I'm not interested. I don't want it. The impurity of the exile, we are Israel creatures. We are at home. Lech l'chayel, that's, that's our home. Okay, I can't be there now, but that's where I want to be. A Jew who's lost that, where it's become part of who they are, you only have the furnace. 
There is no other way than the fire of the furnace to burn us out, to burn out the impurities. He says, and that is the idea that Chazal talked about, the birth pangs of Mashiach, this painful process of purification to get us ready to be able to, uh, to come home. And uh, that's the iron furnace. I, I don't even know if when he's writing this in 43, the, I, I don't even know what phrase to use the description of, as we think about the Holocaust and we think about the furnace, and, and his description of what is, is like, and again, we never connect any individuals with just the idea that there needed to be a purification process. Again, for somebody writing in the midst of it, it's a powerful medrash. That's his interpretation. It's Rav Teichetel's interpretation of why we have these three different visions of what it's like uh, to become free. As he writes himself in section F, this is exactly what is happening in our times. Our fellow Jews have become assimilated, entrenched amongst the nations. They no longer consider themselves members of our nation or sons of the living God. But the wicked one, Hitler, he came along and instituted the racist laws to determine who's a Jew. We lost it, he writes, to the degree that we lost track of who we are. So we needed a Russia to come and tell us no, 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 you're a Jew, and you're a Jew, and you're a Jew, and you think you're not a Jew, you're also a Jew. He had to do that. He did a rigorous search into family origins going back three generations, classifying them as offspring of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, fulfilling the prophecy that instead of that which was said to them, you are not my people, you are the son, right? He's putting into, the Navi says, that he's gonna, you're, the, you're my children, and he put that on, on Hitler, Yemach as saying, you're Hashem's children, Nevertheless, he writes in section G, despite the fact that we have these three different categories and Jews who are so far removed, so far removed from being a, 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 an Eretz Yisrael type of Jew, they're so exiled that they need to be burnt out of them, it is still clear that no Jew, not even the worst one, will be banished at the time of redemption. We're all going home. All Jews will return to their borders. Hashem will accept them with love and affection as has been, as already happened in the days of Ezra. And... Um, and he describes his the last three lines. Therefore, it is clear to me that now, too, when we merit redemption, not a single Jewish soul will be cast aside, not even the greatest, most rebellious sinner. Um, certainly, the Jews, he loves the Jews of our generation, and the Chuli meaning he's now talking to the religious community who have had, as, as has been our history for many years, against the assimilated um, non-religious community of they're all part, and they all need to be part of this, and we all need to embrace them, because as he felt, redemption was... Uh, coming, which brings us then to his big question. This is the big question. In the bottom of page six, what happens first to bring redemption? Is it the redemption, the repentance of the Jewish people or the return to our homeland? This again, this needs a class unto itself. But which one comes first? Are we doing the right thing by waiting for Mashiach to come? Is that what we're supposed to do? Wait for Mashiach to come? Or is Mashiach waiting for us to go home and then he'll come? Now, the traditional thoughts, as I'm sure many of you were raised with, is you put a suitcase under your bed and you wait for Mashiach to come. We wait, we wait, and we wait. I'm waiting for him. And here he introduces the question of, is that indeed the right approach? That was certainly the right approach for 2,000 years of exile. And this is, again, we, this will need much more discussion as we talk about the early days of Eretz Yisrael and Zionism and the first wave of... There's so much to talk about here. Well, we're just skimming the top of it. But in, for 2,000 years of our exile, yes, it was not time. We waited, we waited, we waited. And then there comes a time to think, which he's doing now in 1943, maybe, maybe we have it backwards. Maybe at this point in time in Jewish history, we're supposed to go first 
And that will actually bring Mashiach instead of waiting for Mashiach to bring us. See, he says, well, let's take a look at some of the sources that we have. He finds an answer on the top of page 7 in the Parshish Nitzav, in the end of Sefer Tvarim. Listen to the language or the order of the Psukim that you will see here. And Hashem, your God, will bring you to the land that your forefathers possessed. And you shall possess it. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. According to the order of the Psukim, what's going to happen first? Do we have a circumcision of our hearts and then Hashem will bring us to the land? Or is Hashem going to bring us to the land and then our hearts will be circumcised? So the Psukim are very clear. What happens first? Got to go home. So the Orachayim, again, classic commentator on the Chumash, writes, circumcising the heart, that is repentance. There is no greater repentance than when Hashem will circumcise Israel's heart to love Him wholeheartedly. There are other approaches to interpret this Pasuk, but that's not what he's going with right here. That's the, he's going with the Orachayim. What it means to have your heart circumcised is repentance. That's what it means. And if you read it that way, then it is clear that the Torah makes this matter contingent on getting into the land. You cannot have a circumcised heart to be full, whole, complete with, in, with Hashem unless you've already gotten to the land. Therefore, he says, you must first enter the land then Hashem will circumcise our hearts and bestow upon us a spirit of purity. Thus, as long as we are in a foreign land, this spirit of purity cannot come upon us. It is impossible to achieve the state of umaltem es levavchem. Hashem will circumcise our hearts, will be pure and clear and ready to love Him. We cannot, as long as we still live in a foreign land. Therefore, it is befitting and a sacred obligation for all of us to strive to come to our holy land by way of the circumstances that the prime mover, meaning Hashem, has generated, meaning his Zionist messengers, to bring us to the land. This is, again, radical, coming from a Hasidic Shereb in 1943, to say that the Zionists, these irreligious, anti-Torah, anti-everything Jewish, are inspiring the Jewish people to come home so that Mashiach can come. This was total... That was not in any way, shape, or form the thinking of, uh, of the time. And this is the meaning of, and he will bring you to the land. That is, through his messengers, meaning the Zionists, and through the circumstance that he has generated, that they're bringing us home, and now this terrible holocaust that we're going through, go home. Then, then the Holy One Blessed will fulfill his promise and send us a pure spirit from above. It's an amazing thing that he's saying. What has to happen first? Go home. Go home. If the Holocaust is what gets us to go, go home. When you go home, then Hashem will give you a new spirit, will circumcise your heart, and you'll be able to love Him. <clears throat> circumcise the hearts and cause us to return to Him with all of our hearts and all of our souls. But as long as we remain in the atmosphere of the lands of the nations, here in the exile, there is no means by which to achieve this promise for the impurity of these lands surround us. As the Gemara says many times, the divine presence does not rest outside the land. Similarly, it is clear and true that the spirit of purity from above is unable to descend upon us in Chutzlarts. Therefore, as long as we are here, we're, we're, we're handicapped. Our, our hands are tied behind our back. How are you going to have a pure spirit? According to the uh, uh, Navi, is also an Eretz Yisrael. By, is a 
Zachariah, we say that in the time of Mashiach, in Zachariah, we read in Sukkot, it's going to be purified there too. So, what's the point of going back to be purified there or to be purified here? Because we can't be purified here. That, that, I mean, I don't know, I'm not which specific part of the sky, but the, the, so the, 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 the right, but that process can only fully take place in our zone. And that's, so you're saying that the purification has in our zone. That's what, that's certainly what, if you understand that Hashem will circumcise your heart is referring to that process, yes, that's where that, that's where that will happen. We have many languages of Gemara that, the, you know, someone who lives on the, outside the land of Eretz has is as if he has no God. There's a, I mean, there's, there's not a, Topic for right of discussion, the difference between that, but he's like, so there, you need to get there when you go home, then this process, then this process, and that's the puzzle you have here in the bottom, and you the bottom of the box on the top of page seven. I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you to your own land. Then, after you're home, then I will sprinkle pure water upon you, and you'll become cleansed from all of your impurities. I'll give you a new heart, I'll place a new spirit within you, I'll remove the hearts of stone from your flesh. All of that. That beautiful phrase, Lev Chadash, Ruach Chadash, all of that. When and where will that happen? After you or back in Eretz Yisrael. It, just, it can't happen in Chutzlars. It's just, it's not the place for it. We're, it's impure, so to speak. So how can I purify you in an imp- impure place? Go home, and there I will, uh, I will take care of you. Okay, finishing up. Last couple points. So he concludes his first chapter with a summary of his points, that a return to the land is the solution of the Jewish problems, as a Jew can only fully connect to Hashem there, and even craving the land is already considered as if you are there, we spoke about earlier and last week, and all of the difficult persecutions and afflictions we suffer are to arouse us to return, because it is only in the land that we will be able to fully uh, repent. Okay, two last uh, ideas to conclude. Number one, he quotes... It seems a little simplistic that God is going to punish us, good slurrets, and then, of course, it's natural to go there to Israel. So the other idea that we go there first, that makes more sense. Well, that, no, it's if we don't go, then how is he going to get us there? Yeah, but it's like a, a child. Like you whichever way you want it. You want it you're going to see this last month. Exactly. Listen, we've had the chance. You know, we had 2,000 years of exile. Okay, maybe it wasn't the right time. But now, get on a plane. What's holding you back from coming home? What's, what's holding you back? That's his proof. That's his, that was a mistake, and we continue to suffer from that. We, we, I, did I, I, we quoted some last week. Some of the last week we spoke about that. You know, the Jews, the Jews in, in Worms said, "We don't want to go back. We're happy here. We have a good life." And uh, many, he quotes it. I, I didn't in this chapter that we do tonight, but I didn't quote it. Has the, the list of horrors that came out of Germany throughout history, not just in the 1940s. He attaches to the so, fact that the Jews wrote a letter to Ezra and they said, we're happy in worms, we don't want to go back, leave us alone. L- listen to this Meshul. L- this is Mamish exactly what you're saying, but you'll, you'll see in the bottom he says. There, there's a, the Pusik in the beginning of Shir Hashirim, right at the very beginning of Shir Hashirim, Pusik Dal in the first parak, Mashcheni, draw me va'arut, and I'll run after you. Draw me to you, and I will run. So he writes that, well, I'll speak a little bit about this outside, there's a concept called Mishicha. Meshicha, which is a form of acquisition. A person wants to acquire an animal, make a Kenyan out of an animal, so he names it what's called a Kenyan Meshicha. There are two forms of the Kenyan Meshicha, uh, which literally means by way of pulling. One is in which you literally, you call the animal, or you yell at the animal, and it follows you. 
So if you do that, in which you yell or call or scream and the animal follows after you, it's a form of acquisition. If you, you know, there are two forms of acquisition. You need to pay money for the, from the owner, and then you do this form, it becomes yours. Or, Mashiach is done, in which you strike the animal and cause it to move. Either one of them, in which you are the cause of the animal moving toward you or with you, either by calling it or by hitting it, is a form of Kenyan Mashiach. It's discussed in the Gemara many, many uh, times. At the end of the first paragraph, he describes um, which, which type of Mashiach does the animal prefer the, towards the end of that second paragraph in the middle there. So obviously, by way of calling, because the animal feels no pain. The Mashiach, by way of hitting, on the other hand, hurts the animal, suffers the pains of the blow. So there are two forms of acquiring the animal. I can call and the animal comes, or I hit the animal. So what, pasuk, what word does the Pasuk use in Shir Hashirim to describe as Hashem is going to take possession of us? Say, Mashcheni, do Mashiach, and I'll come after you. So he writes on the very bottom, we are in the same position regarding the call to return to Eretz Yisrael. The land is calling us. Question is, how are we going to get there? If we heed God's voice that calls us to return to our lands, then we will personify the aspect of Mashiach by way of calling. There's no pain. There's no affliction. We'll go eagerly without any external coercion. He will lead us and we will follow. If, however, we do not strive to return to our land willingly, then what is the other way to get the animal? How else do you acquire it? You get a clop. We'll wait until the staff comes and strike us, and then we'll run home. So the choice is yours. How do you want to get there, Israel? It's calling. You can sell your house right now, make a nice profit, choose which flight you want to go on, have the prime minister on the red carpet when you land, nefesh benefesh, get your klita, get your paper. That's a great way to go. Or, or you can wait until every other tsar that's happened to every single other Jewish community in the history of the Jewish people happens to us. God willing, it shouldn't be anytime soon, although it will get us home faster. And we'll go running. It's, there are two ways. There are two ways of the Mashiach. There are two ways to get home. It's all of our choices. It's, all, it's, it's, it's sort of simplistic, but it's sort of true. Go on your own, or you're going to go because you were forced to go. But those are, now, both of these, I just want to comment, is different than what we mentioned earlier, which has been the idea that most of us grew up on, which is, I'm waiting for Mashiach to come. That, I, just, I want to point that out because this is the difference. And that was, I think, for 2,000 years what most Jews lived and died with. I'm waiting for Mashiach. I'm waiting for Mashiach. And as the Rav very famously wrote, but now there's a knock on the door. The world has changed. 1948 changed the entire world. There's now a home to go to. There's a state of Israel. And now you can just pick. My great-grandparents could only dream. Like, what do you mean go live in Palestine? Live with what? With what economy? With what food? With what? What? It's not, it's not safe. Not in the way that we think it's not safe. Like, really not safe. Like, malaria not safe. Like, no economy not safe. Like, pogroms not safe. No government. No nothing not safe. There's no community. Now, when you say to somebody like me or anyone, like, why don't you live in Israel? Okay, we have reasons. Education, money, housing. Where am I going to send my kids to school? But, like, really, if anybody wanted to move there to Israel right now, anyone, anybody could go. Get on a plane. It's not even so expensive. Economy is good to sell your house. It's expensive to buy a house there too. too. But it's only going up there. Eventually it's going to come down here, but it's only going up there. Invest there. It's the best investment you could ever make. There's no question about it. 
So this is a shift from, just wait, I'm waiting for Mashiach, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Every day I wait and I yearn, and that's all that Hashem asks of me. And he's writing, this is still 20 years before Rav Soloveitchik wrote about that my beloved is knocking on the door. He's writing in 1943, we're past that. Now it's a matter of, you're going home and it's your choice. Do you want to go home on your terms? Or you want to go home because of the rod and the striking? But you're going home one way or another. This is the final last paragraph on the top of page 8. This is the meaning, the meaning, it should be the meaning of our plea to God to draw us and we will run after you. When we say, Shir Hashim, Mashcheni Varutza, that's what it means. Call me, I want to come because I'm running to you, not because I'm running from something. That is to say, acquire us with the type of Mashicha in which we run after you. You called you opened up the land, you gave me my home back, and I want to come home. Place in our hearts the desire to follow you. I want to give you a parable. When I was in Canada, when I was in Canada, they closed the borders, as some of you may be. Canada is a country to our north. I didn't just understand. So they, they closed the borders. The borders were closed. The borders were closed for 18 months, if I remember correctly, from about March or uh, April of 2020. They did not open up until August of 2021. Now, you probably don't care, but um, for me, I was on a special visa that because of all sorts of French laws, I had to be on a special visa that I was a temporary worker. We never became landed immigrants, and my kids were allowed to come to Canada as students under uh, our visa, but when they graduated high school, their visa didn't apply to them anymore because of, I was only a temporary worker. None of this is relevant to you other than for know that my two oldest children by 2020, 2021, had graduated high school and therefore had no status in Canada, which they didn't care about because one was in Stern and one was in Israel learning. And under normal circumstances, that's irrelevant. They would come and go, like all of you can come and go to Canada, except when they closed the border. I can go back and forth, as could my wife, because we had visas, but my two older children couldn't come. They could not get home. Impossible. There was no way we tried everything. There was simply for 18 months, two kids could not come home. And these are not like married children in their 30s with their own families. We're talking about an 18 and 20 year old uh, couldn't get home. And every time we would go to visit them in the States, it cost us two weeks of quarantine, which they took seriously in Canada, every time we came back. So it was a major... Every time my wife would come to visit, which was about every other week, and then it was two weeks in quarantine, and then she would go back, she spent 135, we counted, in, in 135 out of 365 days in quarantine. And I have, and if you think like you feel bad for her, no, no, it's me. You need to feel bad. Every carpool, every shopping, she was like sitting on the porch just sipping pina coladas for like the whole year. So it was crazy. It was crazy. We came here for Pesach. We came to New York because I said to the shul, this was already like, I'm, I'm not, my wife doing my kids for Pesach. We're going to New York. And they were like, go, because they knew like we were at, at the breaking point already. Imagine, and here's my parable. Imagine after 18 months of us as parents, like when are they going to open the border? When, when, when? When they finally announced the border is open, what did we expect from our kids? I'm there. Like they made the announcement, I'm on the next plane. Can you imagine us as parents, all that we went through for 18 months, yearning, waiting, crazy, talking with everybody we could, and then finally they open up the border and the kids say, oh, you know, 
I'm like comfortable here already. I don't want to go. It's six hours drive. I don't want. Yeah, like it's not. I, I like. I, I think about if they would have said that, the, the crushing. Eighteen months. I yearned. I waited. I spoke to every politician. I knew he turned over every stone to get you home. And now, 18 months later, you know, like, you're 18 years old, you're 20 years old, come home. I don't want to come home. It's like too hard. It's like not worth it. I'm going to go back. Hashem opens up Eretz Yisrael, gives us a homeland after 2,000 years. And he says, come home. You can come. And we're still living in, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Mashiach. Like, no, no, no. Come home. I don't want to come home. It's not good for me. And for every reason that we come up with, why it's not good for me. Like, I'm waiting. I'm yearning. I asked, I gave it to you. Come home. If we don't run after the call to come home, there's only one other way to be acquired. And that's not a way that anybody wants, but those are the two choices. Those are the two choices. Once it's time to go home and the call has come out, knocking on the door, come. Last point. He asks the question. He asks the question, what about our brethren in the United States? Now, this is an amazing question he asks because he just spent pages and pages describing what merit do we have. It's the afflictions that we're suffering in here in Europe that are giving us the right to go to Eretz So We've put in our time, so he says, What's going to be with our brethren in the U.S.? They're not suffering like us. How are they going to get home? Good question, right? We're still asking that question 60, 70 years later. So I want to, he, he's going to develop, I'm going to skip down to the bottom, an amazing comment from the Maral. It's an amazing comment. And this is what we're going to conclude with because I, none of you are going to be here next week for the final class because I know you're all going to be on planes there at Yisrael. We'll, we'll do the final class together in Yerushalayim. Mirza Hashem, next week. Listen to this medrash. Listen to this medrash. This is unbelievable. The medrash going on the Pasuk at, of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Vayosha Hashem is Yisrael miyad biyad Mitzrayim. Hashem saved us from Mitzrayim. Vayomahu on that day. On that day. On that day, the medrash says, wait a minute on that day. There was a ministering angel of Egypt known as Uzzah, the Malach, complained to Hashem, how can you take him out on that day? They're not done. You promised 400 years in exile, and we know how long did the Jewish people spend in Mitzrayim? 210. 210. The Malach of Mitzrayim said, Zelofer, you told me I would have them for 400, and you only gave me 210. Listen to this, Majush. So Hashem responds to the angel Michael and says, give him an answer. Michael looks the Malach Michael looks at Uzzah, the angel of Mitzrayim, looks to Rebona Shalom and shakes his shoulders and says, shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know. What do you want me to say? You said 400. They're only there at 210. I don't know. So Hashem himself steps in and says, okay, fine. I'll answer it. I never said they'll be in Egypt for 400 years. I said they'll be in a land that's not theirs for 400 years. And when can I start counting that they'll be in a land that's not theirs? 
from the birth of Yitzchak. When Yitzchak is born, Avram was not in control of the land. He was in Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Canaan at the time, but it wasn't his. So I'm going to start counting from then. That's the measure. Morel asks this question. Morel says, wait a minute. Okay, if you, want to, if you want to play with the numbers like that and say you're going to start counting from Yitzchak, okay, fine. But like, why did you ask Michal and why couldn't Michal figure that out? That's like, that's so complicated to figure out. We'll start from Yitzchak. Michal has no idea. Only Hashem comes and says, I'm going to start from already. The morale says like this. The morale says because if you look at a Jew in exile and he looks like he owns the place. He looks like it's his. He's comfortable, he's wealthy, and he's strong, and he's powerful, and he's politically connected. If that's what you see, then you say, I don't see him in exile. I don't see him in a land that's not his. Looks like it's his. Looks like he walks around like he owns the streets. I see the way they, they walk around in exile. They feel pretty comfortable. Seems like it's theirs. If that's the case, then you can't count that as exile. 400 years of exile doesn't count if you walk around like you own the place. So Michal, looking at them, <coughs> I don't know. Hashem says, the morale explains this, but Hashem says, but I see their insides. I can see a Jew who says inside, I might walk around like I own a place. I'm not home. This is not my place. I don't belong here. Ah, oh, that counts. That counts as exile. A Jew who knows this is not my place. I feel the suffering of the Jew of exile. I feel like I don't belong. I feel the humiliation of not being home. Then even if on the outside you look to a malach, can't tell that you're in exile, but Hashem can say, I'll explain. They were indeed in exile for 400 years. The Teichel takes that measure and says, that's the hope for the Jews of America that they become affected, they feel the degradation of our people here in Europe, they feel our pain, they commiserate with us, they weep with us, they contribute support to the land of Israel. If a Jew in exile feels the pain of exile, even as they have their beautiful homes and cars and businesses and political connectedness, and it looks to the world like, they don't look like they're in exile, they look pretty rooted here, but if inside the Jew yearns to come home, the Jew feels the pain of exile, supports the land of Eretz Yisrael, and feels that that's really his place, then Hashem will say, I'll count that towards all the years, that whatever years need to go by, in Mitzrayim it was 400, or whatever we're in right now, I will count those years as long as they are exiled. They feel it. They know that that's not their place. They feel the pain. But if they indeed think that this is home, then the Malach has a claim. They're not finished. Their time in exile is not done. They haven't put in the time because... They're enjoying this. When a Jew says, I don't want to be here. This is not my home. And I want to go home. Then Hashem will count those, those years, count towards our exile years. Verse Hashem, those years should be up soon as we return home. This switch, I'll conclude with this idea. This switch of, are we waiting for Mashiach or is Mashiach waiting for us? We can debate it as much as we want. Jewish history is answering the question for us. Because if anyone over the last 2,000 years, if my great-grandparents, if you would have told them half of world Jewry has returned home, they would have said, ah, Mashiach came. You would have told them, there's an IDF, there's an Israeli currency, there's an Israeli government, you've got 14 religious seats in the government, the Mashiach is here. We're saying, no, we know it's not. 
we're looking at it playing itself out. We could sit here and say, I'm waiting for Mashiach. If the train's left the station, we're almost there. Half of the Jewish population has returned, which means for the remaining half of us, well, we could either continue to say, I'm waiting for Mashiach, I'm waiting for Mashiach, and he's only going to rescue half of us because the other half are already home. That's one possibility. Or it's our turn to go, or the other possibility, we're going to be forced to go. But that's where we're up to in Jewish history. That's just, that's just looking at what's going on. Half are home already. So what's going to be to get the other half home? We have a choice. We have a choice. Go on our own or go not on our own. Um, I, I, I speak to myself all the time. This is like, it's, it's hard not being there. And I, I hope learning this work will only inspire us to uh, get, there, uh, get there sooner, Mitzvah Shem. And I know the board is going to be like, you're sending our members. Yes, yes, we're going to recreate the shul there, Mitzvah Shem. It's fine. It's fine. We should all go, Mitzvah Shem, good health. Okay, last class in the set. We'll do uh, one more in the series. I'll talk about the idea of redemption, Mitzvah Shem, uh, next week. 8 o'clock. Look forward. uh, Yeah, next week we'll see you all then.